My name is Steve Pierce, correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm joined by Shahan Mufti, longtime journalist, head of the journalism department at the University of Richmond, and author of the new book, American Caliph, about the 1977 Hanafi Muslim siege of Washington, D.C. Shahan, welcome. Can you give us a brief overview of what happened back then and why? Well, at the center of my book are uh, two full days uh, from March 9th, actually into early into the morning of March 11th of 1977. Um, these were uh, these were three crazy days in the history of America that have been amazingly uh, forgotten uh, by many, by most. Um, it, this was a, a hostage taking that uh, took place in Washington D.C. on the morning of March 9th. Um, uh, Twelve members of uh, of a, the Hanafi group, a group of mostly African American Muslims, uh, headquartered in Washington D.C., just a few miles up the road from the White House, took over three different locations in Washington D.C. Uh, and they uh, and took close to 150 hostages in the city that morning. Um, seven of them went to the B'nai B'rith headquarters, which is the, the largest Jewish services organization in the country, actually, and the oldest. Uh, a few others went to the Islamic Center uh, on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C., which is the, the at that time was definitely the largest, most important mosque, Islamic mosque in the country, took uh, about a dozen hostages there. And then two other Hanafis, they landed in the district building, uh, which is just a couple hundred yards from the White House, actually visible from the White House. And uh, those three men took uh, uh, about another dozen hostages in the district building. That location was the most violent, where uh, shots were fired. There was a firefight between security, police, and, and the Hanafi hostage takers. And uh, that's where the first casualties that uh, morning happened. Um, speaking of the White House, this was uh, early days for the Carter administration. So Jimmy Carter had been in office no, not even two months at this point. And uh, he uh, he was quickly <laughs> considering all that was happening in that city and how close it was to the White House. The, the federal government and the White House were quickly involved in that. And Carter was actually busy that day hosting uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and they were having some heated exchanges about um, the 1967 borders that Israel would have to return to, and some Middle Eastern politics was in Washington that morning in more than one way. I should, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, tell you that, uh, and our listeners, that uh, I have a personal stake in the story. I was 18 years old at the time. My father was an intern in the district building in D.C., and he was caught up in all of this and um, actually uh, severely wounded. He'd lived uh, life uh, after the incident uh, in a wheelchair, uh, triplegic because of a gunshot wound that was uh, uh, suffered as part of the uh, shooting that you refer to. Uh, so that's, that's right. how I got interested in the story. I, the story got interested in me. How did you get interested in the story? Uh, in a roundabout way. Um, I uh, really, I think... My interest, as I actually did not know about this story. Like so many people that in your audience that are are hearing this for the first time, I had never heard of this until about seven years ago when I found it. I, f I found it kind of a roundabout way. I was um, 
the there was the, the attack in Paris, France, on the Charlie Hebdo offices in 2015 um, by a, a couple of um, French Muslim men, and they had attacked the Charlie Hebdo. Uh, it was a, a satirical publication in France, and they'd attacked those offices because the, they they had published some cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, anyway, I I I mean, I was kind of shaken by that event, and. Um, I, as a journalist, I, you know, I was kind of uh, dry. I, was, I found myself thinking about it a lot, that attack on that newsroom. And uh, there was a lot of, the, like almost half that editorial team died and was c- murdered that day. And it was something that got me thinking about this issue. And I had been long thinking about this larger recurring issue of, of violence that happens around this idea of, of protecting the Islamic prophet's honor and memory and, and, and image. And, you know, all the way from the satanic verses in the eighties to all the way until, well, Salman Rushdie was just attacked on stage again. And in between, we've had the Danish cartoons. We've had the YouTube video that led to the, that when part was in the middle of the Arab spring, there was, there's South park episodes. I mean, there's been so much, this keeps happening. I had long been paying attention to this, and and that's when I, I I started looking into it, and I just found this as a kind of a throwaway paragraph in, in an academic study while I was reading up on the issue about this takeover in downtown Washington uh, by twelve Muslim men and uh, 150, and I just couldn't I could not believe what I was reading because uh, I didn't know, well, I just didn't know, I couldn't believe that I didn't know anything about it. I had never heard anything about it. And I was even more amazed when I found that nobody had actually written about it. And there was no real record of what had occurred, in, in at least in book form or in any kind of long form. So that, as, as a reporter, as a journalist, as a person, author, as a person who writes books, that was that was it. That I knew in that moment that this is something I had to had to write about, and, and I had no idea really the the what I was getting into and the layers I would have to peel back, but but I got started on that pretty immediately, and it, that was seven years ago almost now. I've always wondered why it hadn't been turned into a movie, a Hollywood movie, because it has all the elements. You have you know violence, you have all the action movie things. The only thing. Uh, I think you really don't have a lot of his sex, and uh, you even have Elizabeth Taylor and tangentially. Yeah. So I guess you could. and and a and a crazy cast of characters. That's the thing is that I mean it's just amazing. Uh, the, uh, in the beginning, like when I started writing the book, I did not know. I could not imagine uh, the cast of characters I would encounter. Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar the NBA star central to this story. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor is, is in the, in the mix. Malcolm X is an important character, especially in the first half of the story. Um, we have, uh, you know, uh, Amiri Baraka makes an appearance. Marion Barry is shot in Washington, DC, who went on to become, um, the mayor of Washington forever. <laughs> Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, I would say, is a central, pivotal character, the Libyan dictator. Um, Anthony Quinn is in there. I mean, I could keep going, and it sounds crazy when you list them in this order. How could all these people possibly be connected? But they are, and and that's what that is what I think was really 
this is a rich story and it's just uh all these characters are coming in from different parts of american culture and society and global culture and society and that's what i think really made this story interesting for me but beyond the action and the kind of recreating of important events it was just the the ramifications of all that and and the roots of all that was happening as well as this this uh, this was a um yeah it it just had a it was a really textured layered story to work on and part of, that's why it took a long time but i think that's also why it was a very satisfying story to write have you had any inquiries about film rights for the book <laughs> i think so i'm trying to keep my head clear of that stuff my agent is <laughs> dealing with that but yes there is obviously i mean i think now that the story's been written and 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 Steve, like we were talking about i mean the people did not really this since this had never been written about people didn't really i think appreciate uh the richness of the story but i think now that it's in book form i think uh people in the visual medium are are definitely i assume going to be interested i think it would make a great movie or a series or a limited series or something yeah well most of the work's been done now so uh you know yeah it's just got to get cameras now <laughs> the first time i heard about the book is when you received a grant uh to do the uh research on it uh wow. and i thought fantastic you know finally somebody's researching uh the uh, roots and branches of the story which are just kind of overwhelming the amount of information uh, that's in there if you dig deeply enough uh i was worried when i saw the first uh the, the first signs of the book's publication because it's called american caliph the true story of a muslim mystic a hollywood epic and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true, uh, but it feels a little sensationalistic. And I thought, oh, no, not another one of these. <laughs> and uh, then I started reading it. And I was just really, uh, it was breathtaking, the amount of detail that you have in here, tracing the story around the world. And it struck me that today's standards of journalism, uh, and probably even back in those days, because if you look at the archival video, which there's quite a bit, you mm -hmm. see that there's a huge amount of information about what happened, but nothing about why. Yeah. And after almost 50 years, there's still almost nothing about why until your book came out. How did you research this? I mean, it's it's incredible. Most of the time that you were doing the research was in, was during the pandemic on top of that. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, some of it did overlap with the pandemic. Luckily, I had been able to, it's 2016 is when I really in earnest began reporting on this story and start, start starting to trace down people. Uh, that was my first task is I knew people were around still. Um, your father was not one of them, but there were other hostages uh, that were still around. And that's where I started looking for people and, and started finding people and interviewing people. Um, you know, it's amazing. I found uh, the, the the story kind of climaxes in this really elaborate negotiation that happens between ambassadors and police and the hostage takers in, in the headquarters of the B'nai B'rith. And I was amazingly able to find two of the negotiators. One of the ambassadors was still alive, the Iranian ambassador, Ardashid Zahidi, who was the last uh, ambassador Iran ever sent to this country. He was one of the nego people negotiating on behalf of America. And then Maurice Cullinan, the police chief, who was leading the negotiations. And I was able to find them, one in suburban Maryland and, and the other in Montreux, Switzerland, where I flew out to. And I was really desperately trying to get people just, you know, because it had been 50 years and this story was fading away. Uh, 
and and I and I just I in some ways I feel like I just caught this. Um, I was last night and I was I did an event in Washington D.C. and I found out during the event, I um, found out that one of my key sources, the the man, the U.S. attorney who had prosecuted a lot of the crimes that occur in the book, he had died a week, two weeks earlier, uh, two weeks ago. Um, so. It was, you know, a lot of interviews. I did over 100 interviews for this book. Um, most of those interviews were with people who had direct, were directly involved with the events that I describe in the book. So that was one part of the research and, 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 and reporting. The other major part was just, um, uh, just the paper trail. Uh, these events that I write about left a enormous paper trail over decades. I found out that the central character of my book, Hamas Abdul Khalas, um, the jazz drummer turned hostage taker, um, U.S. Army vet turned jazz drummer turned hostage taker, had, uh, uh, had the FBI had been following him since 1954, I believe. So over 30 years uh, until the hostage taking in 1977, uh, over 20 years. Um there was an enormous uh, file, uh, well, several files on him alone, let alone all the court records of the many trials that happen in this process of the hostage taking, but also a massacre that leads up to the hostage taking. Um, there was FBI records on other organizations. The, I found secret service records on my central character. Like there was, you know, every three letter agency you can think of was keeping track of the, the central characters in my book. And, um, and on top of that, you know, the justice department, the U S attorney's office, all in all, I think I, I went through tens of thousands of records over these seven years. So it, it is, you know, I, I, talk, I talk with about this report. As a journalist, I have to, I know this is something I do take pride in, but I, I also want to, I write a pretty lengthy author's note in the end about my sources. And I do want the reader to know that the book, the, the right, well, it sounds sensational, as you say, the title, and the events are just incredible and extraordinary that I have tried my best. And I think I've succeeded in drawing the picture as accurately as I possibly, as possibly can be done. Yeah, I was struck by the um, number of times that um, the uh, you know the lead protagonist in your story had run-ins with the law and and really mm -hmm. serious criminal uh, infractions, bank robberies, armed uh, in, uh, you know intrusions into people's homes, uh, takeovers, and and somehow avoided serious reper at least from my perspective serious repercussions for that. Do you think any one of those things would have been enough to put him in jail for a long time? Yes, he did. He, I mean, there was a. Yeah, there was a lot of run-ins with the law, um, and uh, they really started happening. You know, it was also kind of the milieu of the, the time, I think. There was a lot of these, uh, um, you know, during, before, during, well, during and after the civil rights era, especially, there was a lot of African-American groups uh, and black militant groups that were doing, you know, uh, the work of civil rights, but sometimes violently. And I think... The Hanafis and Khalis saw themselves in that a little bit, but some of it was, you know, even the bank robbery that you talked about that led to federal charges against this man 10 years before he attacked the U.S. with this hostage take at Washington, D.C. Um, you're right. That could have uh, 
that could have landed anyone in prison, but he he does escape. He repeatedly escapes it. Um, but at that time, what I also found, and this is you know uh, kind of before my time, I'm in my forties, but this, there there is sixties and seventies. There was a lot of this happening. A lot of uh, you know, obviously, the air piracy is something that's well recorded. Hostage takings in the of airplanes in the sky, but there was just an incredible amount of violence from leftist groups and and uh, all kinds of groups during the 60s and 70s bombings um and and it's it, it's really kind of i think part of what was very you know was fascinating to me but also i think this book illuminates is just the the that era the 70s and and the 60s and uh, what a wild time it was in america when it came to militancy and and this kind of you know um violence in the in the country well, you talk so eloquently about that time, the 60s and 70s, but you have a, a, a background that serves you so well in writing this particular story. Uh, you've written another book about your own family history, and you've written extensively about religion. Can you, can you uh, talk about how that informs your understanding of the story? Absolutely. Um, my first book uh, is titled The Faithful Scribe, A Story of Islam, Pakistan, Family, and War. And uh, my family is Pakistani. Both my parents were born in that country. And I, well, the book is built, uh, you know, is built on actually the reporting I did from there. So I um, I started reporting from the country in the middle of America's war on the AFPAC, in the AFPAC region, what they call the AFPAC region, but along the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I was a daily news reporter for the Christian Science Monitor, reporting from that region for several years. And, and I kind of, in that time, I, I built enough of a foundation of a reporting of what was happening in the country, but I added on my own family's history and the interesting ways in which it kind of wove into the news that I was writing. So that was my first book, kind of a reporter's memoir, I guess, is a way to describe it. Um, but at the you know at the, the a lot of what I wrote about was um, political Islam and experiments in in political Islam in Pakistan and. It, and kind of how that all led to to the colonial period under British rule. Um, and it's really interesting. In some ways, the roots of this book, American Caliph, uh, uh, also, be, you know, the roots of this book are also in Europe arriving in, in the New World and the, you know, enslaved blacks who were brought along, many of them Muslim. Um, obviously, you know, the slave trade was bringing uh, Africans over from, from West Africa and the Gold Coast. And uh, that area was predominantly Muslim at that time. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's the, in, in tracing, you know, the title of the book is American Caliph. And in the beginning of the book, I do kind of trace the idea of American Islam and where it begins. And it begins on the slave ships and uh, in the slave trade. And so in, in, in an interesting way, you know, uh, colonialism and settler colonialism on this continent and uh where islam fits into that it was is that you know it's that there both books share that root i guess um and then obviously this idea of his leadership and political leadership in islam uh is it's what this book is about that it's just about american in the american context what does islamic leadership look like while well, my first book was looking at what islamic leadership looked uh, like in in a predominantly Muslim society, here it's about America. Well, it's a challenge to be a reporter in a in an ahistorical time and place, mm -hmm. uh, particularly dealing with these very complex issues. I remember 
uh, being struck at uh, really the cartoonish uh, depiction of the people who were uh, behind this uh, siege in 1977. Um, you know, it's hard, I think, for the journalist to get past the uh, uh, caricatures of thugs and criminals. Mm-hmm. And when you when you read more about the background of these people, they could have done anything. They could have been, you know, people with journalism degrees. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. With, I mean, a lot of the people in this community, in the Hanafi community, were, were college educated. Um, you know, there were, uh, and not just college educated, people from pretty prominent, uh, influential, powerful families um all from all over the country i mean kareem abdul jabbar was was you know he was no fool he was a smart young man and uh you know he was not a jock he was a really thoughtful uh athlete and and a, a reader and and he was he chose this community um you know and and that was typical of this community i mean there was a lot more of that kind of people who were there there was this wasn't a kind of a, a hub for militants or or very few people in this uh of the hostage takers actually there was uh other than the leader Khalis, who had run in with the run-ins with the law uh i don't think that anybody else in that group well, actually, uh, yeah, maybe not anyone else in that group, or very few, one or two in that group had any previous, you know, criminal record. So, so this was a a group of of people. But you know, the, to read the story, you do realize that this community suffered a lot through that decade. Person, like as you know, there was a there was a lot of violence that they had suffered, and there was inflicted on them, and. Uh, that in part, this was this hostage taking was a political move. It was a religious. Um, it was driven by religious convictions, but at the heart of this hostage taking was some real trauma and personal uh, suffering and pain as well. And and you're absolutely right. It would be you know it's not easy to draw these characters out in such complex um, detail uh, and talk about people who 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 hurt other people badly and who carried out these actions that we could easily label terrorism and dismiss as terrorists um, to talk about them and write about them in a way uh, that does provide a texture and does not excuse, I don't think, but provides kind of the to attempts to at least understand why these events happened instead of just narrating the events. And I think that, like you said, at this time, um it it's it's rare uh for a journalist to be able to do that and i think the book form does allow it it's one of the few forms daily news was not one of them i know that as a daily, former daily news reporter but the book form does allow some nuanced uh, retelling um and that's what i've tried to do here the other thing that interests me is that the it, the story plays out on so many different levels but uh the the core demands the uh, uh, suppression of the film Muhammad Messenger of God uh, in its public screenings at a time when that was the only way to see a film. It's interesting to see in your epilogue how uh, that film went on after being suppressed to get very widely seen around the world because of the new uh, home home video technologies. But that was one of the demands, suppress the, suppress the film and then deliver the attackers uh, who had murdered uh, the entire family. Uh, That's right. Uh, so those things uh, are clear, 
But what's not clear, and this really struck me in your book because it's based so heavily on the transcripts of what was happening, uh, telephone transcripts and other really, you know, primary source material about what was happening in the buildings, the terrifying anti-Semitism, which was obvious from the outside because one of the buildings they took was the B'nai B'rith building and they had over 100 hostages there. But there were no demands that were related to uh, at least that I recall, that were related to Israel or any of the things that you think might would that might be connected politically to that behavior, but just the terrible threats and uh, hostility towards the Jews that were hostages uh, really struck me as being out of. It just didn't make sense in the overall story. Were you able to get any insight into that? Well, you're. I think you're absolutely right, and 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 you know that it on the surface it would be absolutely it would be really difficult to piece together what the B'nai B'rith and what the Jews working in the B'nai B'rith had to do with anything that Collis was demanding. He was asking for the cancellation of a Hollywood epic that had been made by a Muslim Syrian immigrant, uh, which was bankrolled by a Muslim Libyan dictator named Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, he had, and his, his gripe was mostly about a rival Muslim group in the United States that that had attacked the Hanafis violently years earlier. And, uh, you know, and he was demanding that Muhammad Ali, who belonged to that rival group, and the leader of the rival group be delivered to him. And, and nowhere in this uh, apparently, do 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 any do, do any Jewish people fit in? But I think that's where uh, Khalas's mental state and perhaps his paranoid mind, uh, which I do kind of allude to in several parts of the book, I do ask raise this question of how sane was Hamas Abdul Khalas, my main character, and and it's it, I, I don't know if I come to a definitive answer in the end, but I definitely kind of. That's where, in some ways, the story begins is with the psychiatric evaluation he's having as a as a as a soldier in the U.S. Army. But um, it was pure anti-Semitism in that the only way that this could possibly be explained is that Hollis did believe that the Jews behind the scenes were controlling all that was going wrong in his life. And when it came time to explain all the misery and suffering that he was experiencing. The only explanation that truly he had was it would have to be Jews who are doing this to me. And in that way, you know, again, these may be the um that maybe the thoughts of a paranoid, delusional mind, but it was fed by by, you know, the again, ideas that he was exposed to his whole life, which were anti-Semitic. Uh, not just in in Muslim circles, but before in the nation of Islam and before that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, it was nonsensical in some ways, but if you just accept that this was conspiratorial, then it makes perfect sense. Yeah, the other part of that that I've often uh, thought about is that uh, notwithstanding his political views and the stated goals, the bulk of the people who were physically uh, wounded and killed in the attack were um, black. Yes. With the exception of my dad, who was... Ex uh, yes. Um, so it just seems ironic in, in a certain way. And, and even the people who were in the long run damaged the most were the people closest to him because of his actions. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I spoke, yeah, I spoke to many of the people, you know, obviously I had to speak to the hostage takers and other members of the Hanafi community who's still around. Some of them have left the community and, and, uh, 
I, you know, uh, many of them are still alive, not all of them, but they, and in retrospect, a lot of them do believe kind of that they were, uh, they, they wasted their lives uh, in some ways, had to go to prison, uh, serve long sentences, and it makes no sense to them in retrospect why they did what they did. But you're right, a lot of, you know, even in the B'nai B'rith, the most brutally, most the people who were most brutalized in a building which was mostly had Jew, Jewish white employ well Jewish employees was uh, the black like a black uh, janitor and a, a, a black printmaker they were just kind of brutally one was shot one was stabbed and it was it is kind of you know interesting and sad that that it was uh, Marion Barry was shot the reporter who lost his life, a young black reporter from the Howard University station, 24 years old, he was killed. He was the first casualty. And you're right. Um, your father was one of the very few um, white men who was, or people who was in any way badly injured. And your father was badly injured, um, but very few others were harmed. One of the things that struck me about your book was the way at the end, well, first of all, that uh, you read 150 pages of a 300-some page book before you get to the story that the book is about. Uh, I was just really impressed by that because, uh, you know, most Americans don't have the patience to wait that long to get to the meat of the story, although obviously the beginning is the meat of the story as well. But uh, also the epilogue, and, and I thought I'd throw uh, out to you um, you know, the chance to reflect on what's happening in today's headlines with uh, uh, Kanye West and Dave mm -hmm. Chappelle and this, you know, the current climate of anti-Semitism, which is just it's just appalling that we've learned nothing of after all this time. And I wonder whether you have any thoughts on what's driving it, what continues to drive this. You know, I mean, that's a really interesting question. My book in the epilogue, I do kind of draw the events from 9-11 all the way up to uh, the Park 51, uh, you know, the, gr quote, Ground Zero Mosque uh, scandal that happened in New York City in 2010, because one of the hostages, one of the people who is a main character in my book, his son uh, was leading that effort to create a mosque in, 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 in downtown Manhattan. Um, and, and I, you know, I loop in Donald Trump's offer to buy that property. And Donald Trump was playing that whole uh, moment to his advantage, trying to launch his political career. Uh, and so I do kind of trace it out to that along with, you know, kind of Barack Obama, who, who in many ways was, uh, uh, who had his roots not only in Chicago, where a lot of my book happens, but being born to uh, a, a, an immigrant, uh, African immigrant, who is of, who had from a Muslim family. So there was a lot there in that moment where I end, I end the book in that time period. But you're right. Um, I mean, Steve, I've you know I was writing this book. I like I said, I started writing this in 2016. I signed the contract for this book in the Obama administration. And now it seems like a lifetime ago, but so much has happened. Um, I was working on this book during the Trump administration and talk of the Muslim ban and uh, build that wall. I was working on this uh, book during the Black Lives Matter movement. I worked on this book during, you know, while people were pounding on the door of the Supreme Court, while Brett Kavanaugh was uh, was uh, being sworn in the Supreme Court. I felt 
while working on this book, a lot of the rage that I had been writing about, um, I saw it reflected and refracted in all kinds of ways uh, during the course of writing this book. And it continues to this day. You're absolutely right. You know, the Kanye West. uh, uh, I mean, again, Kanye West in some ways is a character that, you know, we were just talking about mental health and personal trauma and and political beliefs and religious beliefs all bundled up into one and and in some ways where you know i could think we could tell a similar story about kanye west as well but i also did find out you know this the root that nation of islam uh, under louis farrakhan uh, still exists as an organization that's the organization my main character got his start religious start in anyway and um um, you know, that is uh, an openly anti-Semitic organization. And uh, so it's still, you know, the, this is not in any way, I don't think this is a new phenomenon, uh, but the roots of a lot of what is happening right now and the, what we see right now, we can trace back quite far back. None of this uh, is entirely un-American. None of this is entirely, is is out of nowhere. This is all very much in the DNA of America. And I think that's what, and I appreciate what you're saying about the book that, and this book, I don't, I'm not trying to, I, I really do try to trace out uh, the roots of the events of 1977. And I do think that understanding what happened in 1977 does help us understand a lot of what's happening in America right now during the period that I was writing this book, but also like beyond, I hope. Um and it's not always pretty, it, what I found, uh, but I have tried to be honest. And, and I hope, I don't know, I hope, I hope people will, it will help people understand the moment today as well. Well, I, I thought it was, a, it was an interesting combination of uh, great sympathy for the characters, I felt. Um, and I, and I, uh, I think I understand uh, to a large extent what they went through. Um, but also, you know, the journalistic detail and, and your, the scope of history that you present. Uh, it's just breathtaking uh, to, when you think of, uh, you know, there's, there's such a uh, monochromatic view of Islam in this country for the most part. And when you see what a broad swath of history and, and thought that, uh, that is represented by that word, there's so many people who believe so many different things. Uh, and it makes me think about... Um, Christian fundamentalism and what's mm -hmm. happening uh, in that regard as well. You don't really hear the same kind of harsh criticism of Christian fundamentalism as you do of uh, Islamic fundamentalism. Do you have any thoughts on on where we where we stand today? Could you tell a similar story uh, that's framed by Christian belief as you have uh, here in uh, American Caliph? That's an interesting question and not one I've thought about too much. Um, you know, this uh, I, I again looking at it through the lens of history. I think uh, I did appreciate where a lot of these, um, and well, we're talking about Islam, you know, and tracing out the how old the tradition is and how this, you know, how it's not. And I think most people today will, when you say Muslim or Islam, will associate it with immigrants and 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 foreigners or you know just people who are somehow. You know, you know, there is an there is a connotation there, and and that's one thing that I do, kind of, uh, I do try to trace out through this book is is just showing the deep roots of Islam and and tracing it back to the slave ships, like I said, which is where it begins, and that is where 
what starts it. But there's also, you know, this ad- adaptation that happens where religion, Islam in this case, is um, utilized is one word, weaponized is another word, uh, it, is that in different parts of American history, Islam is shapeshifts. And what dominant Islam in the country is, is uh, really a result of the pressures that that Muslims are feeling in the country, I guess. Um, and I think that is, uh, I, and I don't, I think that could, a similar story could be told about Christianity and religion generally broadly, especially Christianity in this country, of uh, what are the larger anxieties in society that, and what shape does religion, any religion, take to address those larger anxieties, which may not be religious at all, right? This was not about a movie about Muhammad. The story I tell is it's this was not did not all happen because there was a movie about Muhammad. The movie about Muhammad was a pretext to address some really serious stuff happening for decades in Black America, in Muslim America, and in America broadly. And I think, you know, in that way, the religion is just a pretext uh, and the interpretation of Islam in a specific moment or any religion in a moment is a pretext to just address the larger social problems in the country. And again, I, I, that, that was in my book, but I think I would venture that uh, a similar story could be told about the shape that Christianity has taken in this country over the last century well we'll leave that for your next book (laughs) maybe maybe a lighter one is there anything you want to add this has been a long 10 minute interview yes this is one of the longest no but uh, no thank you this was a a real pleasure to be on with you well thanks so much for joining us Uh, shahan mufti uh journalist head of the journalism department at the university of richmond and author of the new book american caliph about the 1977 Hanafi Muslim Siege of Washington, D.C. Thanks so much, and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure.